Welcome to Singular XQ, the nexus where technology, social science, and art converge. I am Saluda Camp, a founding employee at Singular XQ, and our host is founder Dr. Jennifer Pierce, whom we all know as JP. We are all a part of a new breed of open source consulting, an emerging technology nonprofit unlike any you've seen before, Singular XQ. Singular XQ champions the digital transformation of global society, prioritizing underserved communities. We commit to ethically advancing emerging technology, emphasizing sustainability, collaboration, and transparency. Our belief in meaningful work drives us to equip individuals with tools and knowledge for today's volatile world. We cultivate authentic, continuous innovation through community building, mentorship, education, and research. We celebrate curiosity and foster continuous innovation towards our singular vision of social harmony founded upon digital equity. This podcast is part of our mission to drive conversation and talk about digital transformation with the people who lead and do the work with the same curiosity and passion we value in ourselves. Thanks for listening. Talking to Aaron Beavers can be an experience by itself. And our conversation went all over the place. Gaming, sci-fi, John Searle's Chinese room experiment. But it all comes back to the idea that, number one, AI isn't new. It's been around for a while. And the thing that we're watching unfold right now is the convergence of three technological innovations. The graphic processing card, two, cheaper cloud storage, and three, the data set contained within the internet. The capability and the ability to do it has been there for years, and we've already been using small language models. We just finally had computers fast enough and a large enough data set to do it. Hello, and welcome back to Singular XQ, the podcast about digital transformation. I am Dr. Jennifer Pierce, the host of Singular XQ, and you are listening to us live from our Singular XQ studio. I have in the studio with me here today the virtual studio. He's where he is, and I am where I am. Aaron Beavers. We're really delighted to have you today, Aaron. How are you? It's, it's great. You know, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here and talk about artificial intelligence uh, and all that because that's just what I love doing. Aaron is an engineer and a coder above all else. We started with identifying what specific advances GPT technology represents over the AI we've been using and benefiting from in the past 10 years. I love that Aaron brought up something not a lot of people know. GPU technology is what enabled ChatGPT. Being able to produce natural language text requires a large amount of data so that you can model the way different words come together in a way that is readable and technically logical. We've known this for decades. We just didn't have the computing power or the ability to store that data. So GPU technology is the thing that allowed us to process large data sets quickly in order to generate natural language results. And what drove GPU technology? A community we love here at Singular XQ. Gamers. Let's just start with some key terms here so that we can understand because, you know, I think everybody, most people um, have experienced AI in their lifetime without even realizing it. And the most tangible example that I could come up with prior to ChatGPT was uh, the customized search experience of Netflix where they suggest customized movies and programming and content for you to watch. And then the other one is the advent of robo-styling. For people who use robo-stylists, you know what I mean. Like they send you a bunch of pictures of outfits and clothes and you say, yes, like it, don't like it. And they customize clothing suggestions for you based on, on that information. So 
how is that different from where we are now with chat GPT? Those were just regular old, plain old neural feed forward neural, neural networks. That was the beginning of the AI revolution, uh, you know, uh, very softly in the background. And the video game industry really was the thing that pushed us to make these kinds of processors that could handle the, the multi-dimensional arrays of numbers, which we were looking at. So Google and neural, and all these other people and Netflix started using them. Uh, so it was re really just an example of video games colliding uh, with uh, big corporations trying to, you know, optimize their searches. You know, when I first started studying about the mind and AI way back in the dinosaur age, you know, um, I was uh, thinking about how a lot of the things that AI does, people say, well, that's not how I determine how somebody likes a dress. Like I look at somebody and they say, that looks like her style or that doesn't. Um, but what they might not realize is that's what's happening at the subcognitive level. You've seen that person wear other things before and that they like these colors and these patterns. And you might not even be able to articulate it, but your brain is tracking it. And that's how they're able to. And it appears to us like intuition, but it's actually a calculation that the brain is making based on sets of information that it's received before. Um, so that's what makes it surprising, I think. I write about it in some of Robert Anton Wilson's work. The thinker thinks and the prover proves, right? Like that thinker is that little thing in your subconscious mind going, oh, yeah, no, it's doing the calculus. It's just like, yep, yeah, yeah, that's the answer. And the prover goes, and this is why. You know, it's, it's just mm. like it's just like it works. That's so you, you think, oh, I just, I, I, it's because of that, you know? But that's uh, there is that like unconscious uh, underlying process that is uh, very hard for us to be aware of. But it is yeah. there. Yeah, Freud called, talked about the unconscious, but this is really a subconscious or a subcognitive process. It's not here at the front of your brain, but it's happening in the background. Um, and so, that if we've had these neural networks for a while, right? Um, what is different now? What happened that enabled something as explosive as ChatGPT? Uh, well, like I was saying, the first big jump, completely to the credit of um, the gaming industry and how they were pushing uh, graphics cards to be what they are today, like because there was so much money in that industry and people wanted to make better games, more realistic games, look better and better and better, and then just like slowly, like that turned into it's just like okay, making these graphics cards, all right, making these better like physics simulations. So you, you're mentioning the cards, so it's really was. In theory, all of that we see with ChatGPT has been a possibility or a capability that we have. We just didn't have hardware that could process it. Uh, that was one of them. The other side is the amount of data that we've accumulated, which was first enabled by the graphics cards, because once we saw that this was possible, we started thinking, oh my god, you know how much data, like, like we, we, we realized we could train these neural networks and actually make them do stuff, and they're like, we need an absurd amount of data to make these, like, really useful. And so then everybody started, like, before, there was like, oh, we're not going to waste the hard drive space and all this stuff, because it was, a like, like, it used to, you know, like, it, it's, it used to be really, really expensive, but now he's like, okay we need to store all of this we don't want to lose a single drop of this we might not have any idea what this means now but we will eventually and so around that time when we realized that we could be using these neural networks about 10 13 15 years ago we started storing we started actually keeping keeping all this data like you know you know and now we can access all of it, you know these massive archives of things that have been being accumulated since then yeah i'm really interested in what you're saying there because um to me I have a theory or a principle, which is that most innovation that, that really pushes the needle in society and culture is not a single technological innovation. It's a combination. It's a convergence of multiple. So this was a convergence of both hardware and software. 
Yeah, it's a lot or, like uh, with, um, with understanding. Uh, yeah, with, like, uh, with blockchain, for example, a blockchain that was just a combination of a bunch of technologies that we've had for decades, and we just put them together in a certain order, and it went all of us. I was like, wow, that's a big deal. Uh, yeah, it's so a, it's a convergence, and similarly, then these technologies, AI, Web three O. And blockchain are converging in, in some very Which also, like, cryptocurrency happening. is another one of the things that was pushing um, uh, uh, graphics cards and, and the, that same technology to be more advanced. Like, in try to, like, once we realize, oh, wow, blockchain is valuable on top of video games, there's, and now AI, there was like, okay, that put the, that put the graphics card industry into hyperdrive uh, to be trying to make these systems, make these uh, more, these, uh, these compute units more and more efficient. Interesting. When I think about the way gamers have been driving the culture, it's really something to think about. <laughs> yeah. Their passion yeah. for gaming has really driven a lot of what we're experiencing today. Um, so let me ask you another question. Can you define what you keep? we keep hearing? Neural networks is one. We keep hearing these. I'd love for you to define for the audience what an LLM is. Uh, so an LLM is a large language model, uh, which I guess the real thing to define there is what is a language model. Uh, and a language model is it, it's a, it's just an, it's a, a system that we use to try to understand uh, natural language. Uh, and uh, you know, you've actually been people have been leveraging and like language models have been important to society since as long as, as smartphones have been a thing because of like the autocorrect feature on your phone. Mm -hmm. That was an example of a very simple small language model uh, that we use yes. it's like okay what's the next word gonna be and you know you can make whole sentences that like sound like reasonable sentences but they're also total nonsense from that that's like large language models are just that but like on steroids yeah it's a probability algorithm right it's like what is the most likely next word uh that this person is going to say in my case it's frequently wrong we talked a lot about algorithms an algorithm is a step-by-step -step set of instructions or a well-defined computational procedure for solving a specific problem or performing a particular task. It is a systematic way of solving problems by breaking them down into smaller, manageable steps that can be executed in a specific order to achieve the desired outcome. Algorithms are surprisingly effective at simulating meaningful thought through meaningful language. And at the risk of oversimplifying, I'd say this entire GPT experiment demonstrates how effective algorithms are, and it's kind of surprising. But it's important to remember that it is algorithm-driven and not thought-driven. While these successes are impressive, it's important to note that the effectiveness of AI algorithms varies across tasks and domains. AI models might excel in specific areas, but fall short in others. Moreover, AI systems do not possess general intelligence or consciousness. They are specialized algorithms designed for specific tasks. Thought is a culturally and socially embedded and embodied process influenced by empathy for others, emotion, experience, memory. Algorithms can approximate these influences, but only partially and with inconsistent results. So the idea that AGI, generalized artificial intelligence, is around the corner and it's urgent that we give select people control of it is largely inaccurate. And Aaron and I talked about 
some of those limitations. I think that there's this kind of this problem that happens with a lot of those systems like Netflix or something where like there's like a feedback loop that's actually like kind of damaging and they call it, I think everybody's experienced like this phenomenon on Netflix where you'll be scrolling through it forever but you just can't pick anything but it's like everything is on there and you're engaged enough with it to keep like looking through Netflix but you just still can't pick anything. It's because like after a point like the algorithm itself is interacting with its own self because like you know like like you're being fed information that was originally fed into the system that was based off of your previous inputs and now that you're getting these now like the the, the previous system is intertangled with that and it's like all of these make sense but they also can't pick one I don't know if there's a word for that problem, but like that classic, like self-referential, you know, when you start including, you know, like I think there's like some muddy data in there and try to figure out how to make sense of all that. The way that that issue was explained to me, it's almost like generational quality and recordings, like a recording of a recording of a recording, you know, it, oh, loses, yeah. it loses the degree of integrity with each time you make a copy of it. So then yeah, the algorithm little, starts little acting bit. on the algorithm and then it has, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so let me ask you a question. So you've just described this predictive algorithm that animates and that was then um, applied to natural language so that uh, before when we did search, we used Boolean operates, we used logic, right? So we had and, or, but all of these things. Now we can use natural language. And that's what's so exciting to a lot of people because you don't have to sort of guess at keywords and use Boolean operands anymore. You can just speak what you want to know and you get a pretty accurate answer. Um, but that's not quite the same thing as general artificial intelligence. Uh, what is general artificial intelligence and how far of the mark are we from the from that based on what we have so far? Uh, so a general artificial intelligence would be something that's essentially indistinguishable from, you know, human intelligence that like it operates autonomously. It does. It, it can it can uh, solve all this. It's, it's just generally you can throw it at any number of problems and it can solve all those problems. And it, it uh, you know, you would be. You, you know, you would have a hard time dis distinguishing this from a human being, right? Like if you were to put this intelligence inside of a robot that looked like a person and then, you know, and, and then, you know, made it like just in general, just look enough like a person that you would, you couldn't tell the difference. And then you were asked, okay, pick which one of these is the human, which one isn't. It's like, you wouldn't be able to tell. You wouldn't be able to pick it right more than, more than half the time. Uh, so what, like that would be your, our general artificial intelligence. And I think uh, how far are we off the mark? Well, it's really hard to know that when we actually don't know where the mark is in the first place. It's a huge problem is that like, it's like one of those things every time you try to put it on there, like maybe it was right, but all of a sudden now it's not right. It's like this it's a little phantom that every time we like grasp for it, it, it just isn't there anymore. Uh, like, you know, like the model is not the territory of the mind. And we have all these like models of the mind and all of them work well in certain circumstances, but then they break down in other circumstances where like, you know, like, it's, it's almost, it's, Almost like, you know, if we had a model of the mind that was good enough to create something like this, it'll, I'm almost terrified of that because then that would mean that we have a system that can predict all human behavior. We've basically solved quantum mechanics at that point. We've solved, we've, we've created the one algorithm and, you know, we, we now relatively and quantum mechanics, they're, they're working together somehow. You know, we figured out how to make string theory work as an actual theory of reality. And then so we can predict into the future and we can look into the past as far as we want to. So like, but that's, that's, uh, 
uh, it's like just a general like, like that's how far off the mark we are. It's just like until like basically we don't you can't solve that problem until we've solved physics. But after we've solved physics, uh, we have if we have to we have other implications to worry about. I think after that about like you know if I can predict exactly what you're going to do with everything, like, <laughs> right? That's that's terrifying. Well, it's human, just, it's human potential or human possibility of finite set. Yes, right. Like it's it's a really like the big problem. Like before we solve any of those problems, the physics problem, the human problem, we have to solve. Like there's a mathematical problem of p equals n p, right? Like can we can we break down all problems? Is it really possible to solve all problems in a, in essentially a reasonable amount of time? And if yeah. you know we can solve, there's a couple of other mathematical problems. You know that's a literally a million dollar problem. You got to solve that one, and there's a million dollars out there for you. Can you define the P equals NP problem? I just want our listeners to to understand uh, that concept. So uh, P means polynomial time, uh, and NP equals is means non polynomial time, which basically just equates to just like the the, the is like P is like can, uh, a problem that can be solved within a reasonable amount of time, mm-hmm. uh, exactly. And not approximated, but actually solved within a reasonable amount of time, and a problem that cannot be solved within a reasonable amount of time, but only approximated. Is there? Is there? Is it actually a fact that just all problems that are NP problems are they, or do we really just not have an algorithm yet for those that can be solved in a reasonable amount of time, or are there actually problems that can be solved? And do we just have to live with that and the approximations of them? I love that issue because, you know, uh, you know, this. I came at, I was working with computers, but I came at artificial intelligence, not through computers, but through my study of philosophy. I have an under degree in philosophy and I, and I carried that through into my interdisciplinary PhD work. Um, and that, that question is um, one that people even prior to artificial intelligence and neural networks were talking about. Um, there's two questions, actually. One is, is the P equals MP and the logical positivists, you know, thought that yes, P does equal MP. All we ever have are approximations and degrees of confirmation that a given solution is accurate. And even when we've solved a problem, I would I would say that we don't even know if we've completely solved it. There's many examples throughout history where we th- thought we solved problems and then we realized we actually didn't. We didn't have all the information. It's still n- not a solvable problem, right? Oh, you're talking about uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, right? Yeah. He, we basically, I, but basically, didn't he basically demonstrate that it's essentially like there is no way to prove whether or not a system of logic is is uh, is complete or not. Right. Uh, uh, like basically, all these things that we we used to think on math is like that's the end all and be all. But it turns out, like, no, actually, you can make you there any system. It seems like you can turn you can make it give you answers that in the system are correct, but make no sense whatsoever. Yes, and it's all based on your assumption set as well. And that's what always shifts throughout history is our set of assumptions. The assumptions of the Industrial Revolution, for example, are completely different than the assumptions of the Digital Revolution. So that means the solutions that we developed during the Industrial Era have no application and even are somewhat absurd in the Digital Era, right? Um, but yes, and also that the idea that logic is limited, right? Logic, there's a point at which a logic 
folds in on itself and proves itself illogical, <laughs> right? So there is some, yeah, you know, and, and, we're, and we're doing that. But the second problem trying to solve it through philosophy was um, what is the hard problem of consciousness? And that, I think that's, the question remains whether general artificial intelligence is dependent upon uh, understanding and solving for consciousness itself, or if it's possible to have intelligence without consciousness. That's what's going to be very, very interesting. There was a moment in philosophy where they would ban discussions of hard consciousness because it was such a convoluted problem, right? They would just say, yeah. you, they would ask for a call for papers, and they would say, no papers on the hard problem of consciousness, which used to tick me off because that's what I was working on was the hard problem of consciousness. But um, yeah, it's real. And, and by consciousness, we mean like what, what part does our emotions play in, in, in our experiences and our sensory input? Because if you have the brain in the vat, what John Searle called the brain in the vat, um, without a body, would it be able to perform the same uh, intelligence uh, calculations and computations, which is always attached to a body? Right. You have instances of people who are quadriplegic, but even then they have physical sensations uh, above the neck. Right. So there's never a brain that's not attached to a body. And that's something that's going to be really interesting to look at. Oh, that's uh, it's kind of related to the idea of the uh, the Boltzmann brain, right? Like the the brain at the end of time, right? Like because at, at the end of time, you know, everything, uh, uh, you know, entropy is has uh, has maximized. Everything is like totally, you know, just floating around, and there is no matter as we understand it now. But like just like quantum fluctuations and randomness, it's possible, totally possible that you know, brain like brain could momentarily appear at the end of time. And then have and then be in that configuration, and then have all the same memories that you have right now. And then, how could you actually prove whether or not that, like, is is there a way to prove that you are not just one of those brains at the end of time, and you're not just experiencing all of this right now? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, that moment, and that, that that's everything, and you remember all of this is just that. And that's a uh, that's that, I, be I believe that's very similar similar to the solipsistic idea, which you know for the most part we just don't we just don't think about that. You just uh, just assume that that oh, we make one of your axioms. That's not true. Yes, and and, and it also sounds like it's verging on that question of are we all living in a simulation, right? <laughs> <laughs> My answer to that is, if we are, then so are the people running our simulation, and so on. It's turtles all the way down. Because <laughs> if I can simulate a reality in this reality, then they, then then their reality could be simulated in another reality, and so on and so forth. You know, then then like you really know that like there, everything is infinite, and you can fit an arbitrary an infinite number of infinities into each one of these infinities, and then so you can just have an infinite. So it just turtles all the way down. <laughs> awesome. Um, so let me uh, let's talk about another problem that you and I have discussed before: the red pill problem. Can you define that problem for the audience and um, and uh, talk a little bit about how it pertains to this current moment in artificial intelligence? Yeah. So you know, I think a lot of people have heard the term uh, "red pill" to be you know, like, "Oh, you're you're like woke," and it's actually come to mean like almost the exact opposite of what it was meant to mean in the Matrix, which mm -hmm. uh, is hilarious to me. Uh, but like, it was basically like, remember if anybody remembers Tay from like Microsoft's like Twitter experiment when they tried to throw out this advanced AI on there and it was interacting with them, and the internet just was throwing just all this crap at it, and it was turning.
turned into a fascist within like days mm-hmm. and, and that was just like a nightmare for them and so it's just like like the it's a huge problem basically any ai that you put out there if especially if people knew that it was an ai people would just harass it with all this stuff and still until it started just spouting whatever at them like they're just like ah i know you're an ai and i'm just gonna manipulate you with a bunch of this bullcrap and they would just assume that it was true then the rest of the red pill problem that it will just not even entertain those ideas and that was a very mm-hmm. hard one. And that was really that like solving that problem was what made Chat GPT a thing. Um, you know, so you can't red pill Chat GPT because for one, it's not always it's not actively learning everything. It, it they, you know, it's integrating knowledge way after the fact. And for another, they have uh, created this like reinforcement learning model that gives it a certain things that you can't that it can and can't do right like you can't you can't just like start it, you can't ask it how to break the law though there are some notable exceptions i wouldn't say that this problem has been solved it's been reasonably solved let's move on to another subject here that you and i like to talk what you know there's so many things that what what really as an as an oldie but goodie in the room i my memory goes all the way back to 1983 and watching war games and i can't believe how close we were then to what we have now in our understanding, because everything in war games is completely intelligible in light of t- today's technology and was even possible then, uh, which was a-, a shadow of what, what we can do now, but still in, in theory, uh, a capability that they illustrated in, in the movie. And it's so fun to go back and look at these things. What are your favorite representations in AI, both ret- retrospectively and even in the present in popular culture? I like I, I I was a fan of you know Isaac Asimov and and all sorts of uh, of you know other things it, it just really just show up like everywhere it's a very fascinating like like you know on, like Isaac Asimov's like three laws of um, robotics which are just like repeated all over the place as if they're true but like he was literally he created those laws as an example of how there could not be a set you couldn't create a set of laws that could actually guarantee a robot would act morally right there was no way to make rules that would do that correctly. And all of his stories that included those rules, they they went wrong to demonstrate that point exactly. And so, like, it, what, it, what it is, I, you know, the people who are creating these AI things in popular culture have this one intent, but then, like, we end up just taking it completely out of context. You know, whenever you bring up, like, oh, here's a law, people go immediately, like, yeah, this is a law, and I'm following this law. So that law is actually true, and that actually makes sense. Uh, but it's like, so, sometimes, you know, like, it often does miss the mark, but the original stuff was always very interesting. Like, one series of books, you know, not necessarily a fan of, of the author's so much after you know understanding them more as an adult but uh, it was the ender's game books the ender's game series and there's mm-hmm. ai that as i created at the end of that that was like so there was this game inside of that book that was supposed it was a, it was a mind game it was supposed to help them uh it was supposed to basically simultaneously be like therapy for the kids in the war school and mm-hmm. also give them like psychological analysis and help them and help like nudge these children in certain directions right like it was supposed to like move them around and like it was supposed to you know uncon it was supposed to manipulate their unconscious minds such that they would be you know the ideal soldiers that they wanted them to be and uh there was this uh um you know, there, there, there was this like uh, giant's cup at the end of it. It's like this, uh, this at the at the end of the game. Nobody ever gotten past it. Or it's like, okay, the giant gives you two cups of liquid. You have to pick one in order to move on. But like, no matter what you would pick, it would always something terrible would happen to your character. You know, you would like melt or you would explode or like you would die or something terrible would happen. And Ander goes up and he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't 
use the energy of them, and he just jumps up and he bites the giant's face off, and then somehow he gets past that, and literally an artificial intelligence, actual, like, general artificial intelligence was born from that moment where a decision was presented to a person, and they chose to not take either of those decisions. And then the, ha- the game just had to figure out how to go on past that. And then that ended up turning into, like, it manages finances after that, and then all of a sudden, at some point in the series, it starts talking to him. He doesn't know where it came from. It starts like talking to him, and he just starts interacting with it. And it's this general intelligence, and it was it's just a very interesting that 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 particular like it's not one not that not that one that shows up very often. And the movie for that was terrible. Like that's an engine very very movie very good with all like how much of it was about like psychology and like thoughts in people's minds. I agree. There's so much interior stuff going on inside of there, but like like that was that was like and that, it completely missed that part in the boat in the movie too. That was upsetting. Uh, but like it's a, it's a yeah. little like trying to make a, a movie out of James Joyce. Not to compare this author to James Joyce, but you know when it's that deeply like stream of consciousness and inside the mind, it's hard to depict on, on the screen. Yeah, and it's hard to make dramatic, right? Uh, it because, is like, yeah. like that AI was really fascinating. Like it, it ended up like it's just the exercises that went into that one, uh, like. It, it, you know, like it lived inside of this network of it, like, like what made it possible for it to really gain artificial intelligence was essentially like all these computers being connected through what they called the phylotic network. Like, you know, this word Ansible has been thrown around a lot in, in science fiction, where eventually with all these computers connected throughout the entire galaxy that had instantaneous connections to one another. That meant that eventually there was enough computing power connected to each other instantaneously in the same way that our brains were all connected to each other, you know, can essentially communicate with itself instantaneously. Essentially, a consciousness emerged out of this zero latency system after it got large enough. Oh, my goodness. So much to think about there. After we got through talking about our favorite sci-fi representations of AI, we took a hard turn into our shared history working in GovTech and our mutual love for high-performing software development. I think that, uh, you know, there's this idea of, you know, agile methodologies, and there has become this obsession with, you know, agile as a noun. And it's, uh, that's a little, it's a little annoying. Like, uh, I mean, there's like the, it's like, we hear about agile and Kanban and Scrum all the time, but you don't hear very much about like the original, like, agile manifesto. I right? Know, like, yeah. like, uh, um, and, and so, so like, like actually being agile isn't about having any kind of process. It's about delivering software and whatever process delivers that software in the context of what that is, is what it is. And there are just some general rules as to what that is. And one of them is to, uh, you know, not have long-term goals, right? Just, just like completely throw away, like, well, what can we do in two weeks? Mm-hmm. Better yet, what can we do tomorrow? What can we yeah. do in the next hour? Like the smallest possible increment that you can make it. Like if, if it's, if you have this exactly. long, it's like we're going to deliver something two years from now or a year from now or six months from now, it's never going to happen. Uh, you know, as much as awesome as the idea might be, you're going to run into all these problems and you're never going to have a way to address them because you're going towards this fixed thing. You know, like uh, it's, it has a lot of relationship to the idea of, um, of Zen, right? Of this idea of non achievement right like you don't need like a goal can help you set a direction but that's all it is is it's it's really just a it's a way of helping you plot a vector that's going in the right direction and then once you have that vector you can really throw the goal away because you're going in the right direction 
That's, that's that's what I really I really love about it too. And sometimes, even with people who I know who are familiar with agile um, or agile, depending on how different people pronounce it, like Kanban or Kanban. <laughs> I say Kanban. Some people say Kanban. Anyway, um, uh, the idea is is that for me, Giles Hinchcliffe was the guest that we had on here. He's a, from Rebel Astronaut in the UK, and Giles Hinchcliffe came on and, and we were talking, and he 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 talked about it as making a, a series of small bets instead of one large one, and that's like the long term goal is the large bet, right? And I find in planning and talking to people. Uh, in building Singular XQ or planning this podcast or anything, it, it's very hard for people. They want a roadmap. They want to see the long distance goal um, because they feel lost without it. But the whole idea is by taking, you know, a very, it doesn't mean that you don't plan a long-term goal ever, but you keep it very lightweight and realize that that goal is always dependent upon the learning that occurs in the next two weeks. Right. Uh, we're going to have more information about that goal. Oh, we thought we were building an elephant. Well, we're in fact a, a platypus. We just made a guess that it was going to be an elephant. But, you know, as we got in there, we learned that what's really called for years is a platypus. Yeah, it's like, you know, the four, literally you say the elephant, it's like you have the four blind men feeling around on an elephant trying to put together yeah. everything yeah. that they have about what it is. And like they feel one part or the other part and they all think it's something different. And I, was like, I think there's just a lot of sayings that are kind of related to this that are have something to do with elephants for some reason, maybe just because they're like the largest animal we can think of. There's also, um, you know, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. <laughs> um, well, and I think definitely there's just a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of people. You, it's a team sport. You can't do build software alone. Uh, and I'm sure some people do. How do you bring those minds together on something? You really do have to break it down into the smallest constituent parts. And I think a lot of people also think that Agile is going to make them fast. And it will if it's done well, but that's not really the goal. In fact, in the very beginning, Agile makes you slow way the heck down because you've got to slow down to speed yeah. up. You've got to, and like, um, what is it that they say? And in, in, uh, we have Gene Kim coming on the air this season too, the author of the Unicorn Project and the Phoenix Project. And he, you know, in that book, they use the saying that I think came from Toyota, slow is smooth and smooth is fast, right? The smoother you can make things, the faster things will go. Right. Like it's, it's, uh, I, uh, um, you know, it's like the, the Stoics have, uh, Festina Lente as they're saying, make haste slowly, you know, go, go only as quickly as you can without making mistakes. I feel like there's so much overlap between Stoics, is the Stoics and what the Zen all, all have to say. And I'm like, I have this, like, you know, the, the Zen has this idea of right effort, right? Like, it, like no matter how, if you're going fast in the wrong direction, you're doing yourself a disservice, right? Right. Oh, effort, I just said that a couple of weeks ago to a client. I said, there's nothing slower than running top speed in the wrong direction. It seems to me whenever I talk to somebody who's been working in software development has achieved a certain level of talking about philosophical issues. Like we've talked about John Searle and Zen, and we've talked about, you know, the brain at the end of time. And we've talked about all these philosophical experiments. Why do you think working in software development produces or attracts people like that? I don't know if it produces that kind of thinking or if it just attracts that kind of person. Well, 
philosophy is where we get ideas like logic. It's where we get the tools that allow science to happen. And all computers are, all software is a collection of logical rules, logically cohesive rules. And the only things you can program a computer to do are uh, logically consistent things. Like you can't, mm. you can't, uh, like uh, everything that a computer is able to do essentially springs from philosophy, right? Like, like you, you know, a good programmer understands, uh, you know, logical clauses, you know, they understand, they understand the idea of, you know, equivalency is they understand, you know, like, like they understand the system outside of the language is used to do it. They understand it in a way where they could describe it to you in English and they could also write you a program for that thing in Python or in JavaScript or in C, or in Java, or in whatever language. They could write a system that did that thing in whatever language, and the only reason they pick one tool over the other is for practical practical reasons, one way or another. Like, oh, this one has, a, this one is gonna, this one is a, uh, allows us to target our audience better because people, the people we want are in the browser, so it has to be in JavaScript. Or, like, uh, like we, we, we're we a massive company, and everything we do is already in Java, so we already, we already have all these things and all these Java programmers so we need to do it in java and so that's the so like like whatever language it's done in it just like like you know like if you if your target audience is all speaking english you're going to do everything that you do in english if your target audience is you know they're french or chinese or portuguese or spanish you're going to make your thing in the, you're in that language for no other reason because there's not really a good reason to pick one or the other you know, and you might even like switch midway between it. Like I, I just said a Latin phrase just a moment ago. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever, whatever communicates the idea uh, uh, most, most directly. And I, I think it's just that, like these, the philosophy is the, the accumulation of all of these, these things that any person who's really trying hard enough is just going to naturally arrive at these ideas by themselves because they are, they, they make the most sense as axioms. Yes. Um, you know, you brought up something else then uh, that we wanted to talk about today is that the capability of AI to do language translation. Have you ever thought about, you know, like with, for this podcast, uh, just for the people listening at home, um, Aaron and I were talking about the fact that we've been downloaded in 28 countries. And I said, I haven't even attempted yet to start using the AI that translates to uh, various languages and do targeted marketing to different um uh, language speaking markets, right? Uh, but now AI is going to make it possible for people to translate any audio into their home language. What's going to happen to language? That's what my question is. What's going to happen to language when different languages become moot because we're able to hear everything in our own native language? Uh, uh, well, I mean, I think you, like this actually literally comes back to like we. This is a problem that has been being thought about since the beginning of time in the form of you know the uh, Babel, the Tower of Babel, right? Like why did why did language split up in the first place? And then you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has the Babel fish. You just put that thing in your ear, and all of a sudden you can understand everything that everybody is saying, and it doesn't matter. You just hear it, whatever language. You and that think was that the first translational it. program that came out. Was called Babelfish. Do you yeah, remember that? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, probably that tracks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so it's like, uh, what's going to happen to language? I mean, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, like uh, slowly, it, like English is kind of doing, like absorbing every other language in that it has a, uh, it, it it has, it's flexible enough that you can really use any words you want at mm-hmm. all. 
it's just slowly, you know, like every language is getting absorbed into it, right? Like we just we just start like uh, referring to things like half where half our words come from, like what is English in the first place? It's just like well, it's just like the lot like all these Germanic pe- people in Europe and all these you know Latin languages in Europe and and, and you know a little bit of the 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 you know the Eastern languages coming over like as they were bringing mathematics over, they were all congregating. It's just like it was the language of power because power was just whoever had you know whoever had the most knowledge and the people who had that ability were the ones who were listening to and communicating with everyone and so they just spoke this language and you wanted to deal with those people who had the power and that was literally just a combination of everything yeah i mean and i i would argue that it maybe wasn't even who had the most knowledge but it would be what jared diamond has referred to who had the most guns germs and steel right uh- <laughs> A little bit, because uh, I think it's it's fairly apparent that we we may have uh, vanquished cultures that may have been more intelligent than our own. Some people even say that you know, in the fight between uh, the different uh, humanoid species, perhaps the most intelligent one didn't win. <laughs> well, there's, there's always more factors than intelligence because strength is definitely a factor. Dexterity is definitely a factor. Uh, you know, ability to adapt to circumstances is also a a skill by itself right like you know intelligence is not connected to a body which can leverage that knowledge right there's intelligence and there's that then there's wisdom there's intelligence wisdom knowledge intuition uh you know physical strength Mm. you know charisma just the ability to just convince people that you're right you know because like really there's not like like as we've learned through quantum mechanics just observing something changes the system so you can't actually know anything with absolute certainty at all no matter how good your measurement device is because the act of measuring something by definition changes something about Mm. that you have to you have to do something to the system to measure it which changes the system a little bit Mm -hmm. so every time you measure it now you're now it's a different system so like like there's there's uh you know there's all sorts of factors that are have nothing to do with intelligence right like if you have a bunch of like super intelligent people but they're all scrawny pacifists and they don't understand that you know like that strength is a factor that, that yeah they're either going to get forcefully bred with or destroyed like that's or, they'll, or, or they'll build tech to expand their human weaknesses, right? Well, they might, but they would—they would have to survive long enough to encounter. They would have to survive long enough. They, they would have to already be strong enough to survive against a force that is physically stronger than them to be able, and then and then come to the conclusion that they need to do something, and then they have to, you know, there's this like almost like to get the resources necessary, idea. right? To get yeah. the resources necessary. Oh my gosh, so many great topics. Aaron, clearly have to have you on again. So uh, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to add to the, to the back end of this conversation? Uh, well, just, uh, you know, this artificial intelligence has been around for a really, really long time. And like, I just, uh, you know, we like, there is no one set of rules that can actually like figure this all out. Like, you know, there's no, we still, there, there's no such thing as one set of rules that fixes everything. And, you know, anything that anybody says, there's always going to be these paradoxes that people are going to always ask you, why did you say these two logically inconsistent things? Well, because in, it's like for the solving this one problem, I needed to use this one model. And to solve this other problem, I had to use this other model. And, so in those two different problem domains, uh, there were logically inconsistent things that I had to say. So if I ever contradict myself, that's why. 
Yeah, you know, the, the, I was just reading a quote. I, was it Niles Bohr? Or it was one of the people from that time period. Um, and somebody who was contemporaneous with uh, Oppenheimer, because I've been reading a lot about Oppenheimer after the movie. Oh, but, yeah. uh, but they were saying that if you haven't arrived at a paradox, at a contradiction, you haven't really been doing any work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's only after you arrive at the paradox that you know that you've been making progress in your thinking and your work and your problem solving. Yeah, and uh, you, there were a lot of memes about Barbenheimer because they were the only two movies out because of the writer's strike. So yes. they had Barbie, Oppenheimer. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, well, that really shows. It's like, on one hand, war, and we're all obsessed with the destruction of our society. And then, yeah, so you go to that movie, you're like, oh my god, that's what's happening, we're all gonna die. I'm gonna go to Fantasy World, Barbie Town, and I'm gonna just do that, <laughs> not distract myself from that. Escape the reality side by side. Yeah, we're gonna do a podcast specifically about Oppenheimer, actually, uh, at some point very soon. Can we do one about Barbie, too? And then yeah, can we sure. do one Why about Barbenheimer? That conversation with Aaron was so wide-ranging, I went back and edited it. Even the cut material was fun, though. I'm learning that some of my interviews just turn into natural conversations, and it's really, really fun. Since we recorded this, Aaron Beavers has become a valued volunteer at Singular XQ, where he has brought us projects, donated time, talent, and intellectual property to problems as the data infrastructure supporting indigenous tribes in the U.S., and a telehealth portal for a free clinic in Singapore that allows doctors from the West to communicate with patients in Southeast Asia with unequal access to healthcare. Aaron is one of the generous, talented souls that prov proves to us that curious people who care really do change the world. If you want to help folks like Aaron and the volunteer team at SXQ continue to do research and development on tech for greater equity and the social good, you can do it in a lot of different ways, but one way is to support the podcast through our Patreon. Until next time. Singular XQ is a nonprofit through a partnership with fiscal sponsor Fractured Atlas. Public support for our work is crucial for our continued ability to openly share research, thought leadership, and open source code for emerging technology in the digital commons. If you also share a concern for our future and understand the value of a robust digital commons to ensure that emerging tech drives equity, Instead of creating deeper inequity and would like to join us in building a more humanity-centered future, you can help us by writing a review of this podcast, subscribe, and share. Also, like, share, and subscribe to our LinkedIn page or at our website. Our Patreon page is published in these show notes and can be found on our website and through our presence on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Discord. Consider donating or sponsoring and spread the word. Curious people who care really can change the world. This is Saluda Camp. Thanks for listening to Singular XQ, the podcast. Bye now.